So young people, if you recall the movie Infinity War, do you recall that movie? And so it's that moment where Thanos, I say Thanos, you may say Thanos, he's caught up with Doctor Strange and Stark, if you recall, and Thanos just needs two more Infinity Stones, right? To complete that, that terrible plan of his. And so Doctor Strange and Stark battle it out with Thanos, and Doctor Strange won't give up the stone, but then Thanos damages Stark's suit, and he stabs him, and he's about to kill him. He actually threatens to kill him if Strange doesn't give up the Infinity Stone, the Time Stone. And th so Doctor Strange releases the stone. He relinquishes it to Thanos, and Thanos is able to take that power, and now he's one step closer to achieving that goal of destroying half the world. And so at that moment, Stark, if you recall, just looks at Doctor Strange, and there's this look of disappointment in his eyes. He's really upset about it. He just looks at him and says, why did you do it? And Doctor Strange, if you remember, just a little bit earlier, had gone into the future. And he had gone through 14,065,000 scenarios on how to beat Thanos. And he found one scenario. And he looks at Stark and he says, it's the only way. Tuck that away for just a moment. Okay, so today we look at this central section, the central unit of our section, 7183. And uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable passage. In fact, once I got into it, it was so remarkable that I had to break this sermon up into two. So our unit is 7183. And so in this unit of which our passage is central, this little section I'm going to read is the central part of it. What we have is that Jesus' identity is questioned, and therefore the kind of faith where to place in him is considered. And so it's this point of questioning Jesus' identity that comes out clearest and sharpest in this central story. So let's hear God's word. We're going to read from verse 718 to verse 23. And the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, and this incredible word endures forever. Thanks be to God. All right, so this section, and we're going to look after, you know, because really this section goes all the way to verse 35, and... The reason I titled this sermon Great Questions is because, or yeah, 
great questions is because there's some, there's some other very good questions here. And actually, you structure the passage along the lines of the questions. And so all that kind of led me to think through, if you recall that book back in the 80s, the little pamphlet by John Blanchard, the English preacher. And it was a, a book we used to use for evangelism. It was called Ultimate Questions. Do you all remember that little pamphlet? But the opening of the pamphlet says this, life is full of questions. Some are trivial and some more serious, and some are tremendously important. Even as you read these words, you may have questions about your health, your financial situation, your job, your family, your future. But the greatest, the ultimate questions are about God and your relationship to Him. Nothing in life is more important than that. And so he asks various ultimate questions in his little pamphlet. The opener is, is anyone there? Like, is there a God? Is God speaking? What is God like? Who am I? What went wrong? Is there an answer? Why the cross? How can I be saved? I mean, those are some good questions, ultimate questions, and it's really strange, but also like crazy that it's so easy and usual for us to answer all the smaller questions and not really give due consideration to the ultimate questions. And that's what our culture's like. We have a host of questions, but these are the ultimate ones. And this is one of those texts that really pushes us to answer and ask the ultimate questions. So I'm just going to deal with one of them in this little section. That question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So, have you asked that question? Or are you asking that question? You know, sometimes we feel like we've answered it, but really in practice, we're a little unsure. Are you really seeking that answer in your life to that question? It's the question of questions. This is it. This is like the centerpiece of the questions that you and I have in life. Like, who is he? So now recall what we did last week, that wonderful story, my favorite, the widow of Nain, and Jesus raises the widow's dead son. And you recall that it said the report about that went throughout the land and even into Judea. I mean, it spread like wildfire, person to person, throughout the little villages, all over. They couldn't stop talking about what Jesus did. And so, disciples of John hear this, and they go to John. John, the man you proclaimed, he raises the dead. So the question is, how is John going to respond to that when he hears that news? So John, upon hearing the report from his disciples, he calls two of his disciples to him. And he sends these two disciples to Jesus with this poignant question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, how does that strike you today? How does that question strike you? And so the, the gravity, the seriousness with which John takes this question is underscored by the fact that he calls 
two disciples to him and sends them to Jesus. If you recall back in Deuteronomy 19, it says, if you're going to make a charge against anybody, you need two or three witnesses. This is a, a serious matter John is undertaking right here. The basic fundamental importance of this question is stressed by the fact that Luke records it two times and the disciples repeat it word for word to Jesus. Like, we get to hear what they say to Jesus. Word for word, what John commissioned them to say. And the fact John asks the question in the first place after being the committed, stalwart, clear preacher, not only preacher, but herald and forerunner of Jesus. And the way he asks the question, or shall we look for another, really put an edge to it. There's an edge on this question. And so it's puzzling what John's doing here. Like scholars have various ideas. It's surprising what John asks here. Some have said it's even embarrassing what John asks. One even says it's insulting what John asks. And so remember what's going on with John. We can't understand the question without what's happening in John's life. Remember, John is in prison. Like back in chapter 3, this resolute lover of God and his truth, herald of Christ, he confronts the most powerful man in the region, doesn't back down the tetrarch of the region of Galilee, Herod Antipas, and he stands in the road, calls him out for marrying his brother's wife, like taking his brother's wife from him and marrying her while his brother is living. And so Herod, you know, at the instigation of Herodias, remember his wife, imprisons him in a prison called, a tower called Machaerus. And it's about 100 miles from where Jesus is right now. I mean, word is spread. He's 100 miles away, way down south. And so Machaerus is literally means black fortress. I mean, I wouldn't want to be prisoned in a dungeon in a place called the black fortress. This grim ordeal. Not to mention the worst part is the foreboding of what's going to happen. You've got a man that's got no scruples, just wants power. What's he going to do? What's he going to decide? And remember, Herod ends up just beheading John the Baptist as part of his birthday party. And that's the kind of man he is. And John's been languishing in this uncertainty, in this discomfort, in this misery for a year, year and a half, maybe even up to two years by this time. So just put yourself in John's shoes right here. This isn't a question from a seeker, just seeking who Jesus is. This is a question of a man who knows who Jesus is. He's, I'm not worthy to tie his sandals 
the one who's coming. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knows who Jesus is. This question reflects, however, serious doubt. But, but the doubt has to do with not Jesus' identity per se. It has to do with these deep misgivings and disappointment with Jesus and what Jesus is doing. Both deep confusion and frustration over his style of ministry and also more personally, his manner of treating him. His general style of ministry and his manner of treating him. In other words, Jesus is failing John's expectations. And it is tough as John sits there in that prison. So first, in terms of Jesus' style of ministry, John thundered God's imminent judgment. John longed for a national revival. He was the man who said, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Repent. One preacher calls him the alarm clock. Wake up. You've gone to sleep. You're apathetic. You're going through the motions. Repent. Prepare the way for the Lord. He called the nation to repent and to turn from their sin in view of Messiah's coming who would save his people and destroy his enemies. Yet, Jesus doesn't bring vengeance and he doesn't bring judgment. Jesus focuses on grace. He focuses on the poor. He focuses on salvation. John's going, where's the judgment? He's looking at Jesus going, you're not doing what I proclaimed you were going to do. The nation's not getting reformed and judgment hasn't come. And then second and more personally, John is wasting away in prison. And it's been very hard and very fearful. And John's saying, you're not judging your enemies in general, and you're not judging them in particular. Why don't you oppose Herod Antipas? Why don't you step in here? Like, here's a clear enemy. Step in. I mean, Jesus, you quoted Isaiah 61 in your inaugural sermon in Luke 4, 18 and 19, the programmatic sermon for your ministry. And we treated that several times when you said, quoting Isaiah 61, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, <laughs> recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a day acceptable to God, to set at liberty the oppressed. I'm a captive. You got a concrete person here and I'm oppressed. And I have been for a year, a year and a half, two years. Why aren't you doing anything? Like, I'm your forerunner. I'm the herald. We're on the same team. We preach the kingdom of God. If there's anyone you should step in and help, it's me. You're leaving me in the jail cell to rot. I've given my whole life to you. It's not just that he came on the scene late in life. John was quickened in the womb for this. He grew up knowing he would be the herald of the Messiah. If anyone's denied himself, 
He's lived alone in the desert, eating locusts and honey for years, preparing to be the herald and, and pre- a precursor to the Messiah himself. I mean, if anyone is all in, it's John. If anyone has repented of sin and sought to trust in God's salvation, it's John. And I'm your cousin to boot. (laughs) And I'm in prison. Why are you leaving me here? I don't understand. It's John's dark night of the soul. I've never really given it enough thought until this past week. How tough that must have been for him. And so verse 23, Jesus responds to John's attitude. And he he says these words, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And John is offended. He voices John's attitude. He's offended by Jesus. The verb literally means he's scandalized by Jesus. It comes from trapping things, like trapping a bird. It, It means he's tripped up or he's trapped by something. It's a stumbling block to him, or he's stuck somewhere. Like, he can't get past it. Like, Jesus has failed him. He's let him down, and he's confused. He's very confused and frustrated and impatient, discouraged, despairing even. Like, what are you doing? And and John's far from the only one who's gone through this. And you just think, of those heroes in the Word, and so many of them have gone through this situation, this, this trial. I mean, just think of Elijah. You know, John is the new Elijah. Malachi says, you are the Elijah, right? You're that bold prophet who's calling the nation to repentance. Remember the story of Elijah. So Elijah on Mount Carmel, he gets all Israel up on Mount Carmel, has the prophets of Baal there. And they had this contest, you know, this is a, there's a sacrifice here, and the God who answers by fire is the true God, and they work all day cutting themselves and dancing, and nothing happens, and he kind of mocks them, and then he puts water all over it, makes a deluge of water over the sacrifice, and then the time of the evening sacrifice when Israel should be consecrating themselves, he prays, God send fire, and Blast it with fire, and the people erupt. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And they kill the prophets of Baal. And Elijah was consumed with, I so want national revival. That's what he lived for. And yet, right after this happens, Jezebel sends a messenger and says, By this time tomorrow, you will be dead. And all of a sudden, it dawns on him that's just a part of the nation. There's not going to be a national revival. Like, there's not going to be one. I'm going to be running for my life. And what I gave my life to, I'm not going to see the fruit of it. And he goes out in the desert and he tells God, look, um, it's enough. It's enough. Like, I've had enough. Now, oh Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. It all happened to them too. Just take away my life. Essentially, God didn't do what he thought he would. He didn't treat him like he thought he would. And John's so similar to that. Emotionally spent and patient with Jesus. And, and likely you've stumbled there and you've been offended with Jesus and I've been offended with Jesus. He's been a stumbling block to us. And we look at God and say, you're not treating me like I thought you would. 
You know, I've, I've, I've tried to follow you. And now this. Now this. Like, what are you doing? Or maybe we look out in the world, we say, why isn't your kingdom flourishing like the word says it will? Like the kingdom advancing. Why are there wars and rumors of wars? Why, why do things appear to be going from bad to worse? Why isn't the kingdom of God growing at a greater rate? Why do we have so many difficulties right at home? And we go through our own dark nights of the soul. So John, well, it just encourages me to no end that a man of the caliber of John struggled there. And this may be the most pinpoint one in the whole of scripture. You know, if he's the greatest prophet who sees Jesus and announces Jesus, I mean, this may be the darkest night of the soul. Now, he struggled there. And so if you find yourself there, John the Baptist was there. And so John asked that question, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answers it first through what he does. And so it just so happens when John's disciples come and ask him, Jesus makes him wait, observe. And he's full on healing people of sicknesses and diseases and afflictions. And that word afflictions is literally whips and lashes. It's like bad stuff and casting out spirits and bestowing a really literally gracing blind people with sight. It's beautiful. In the midst of all this healing, he looks over at John's two representatives, his two witnesses, and he says to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And so what is Jesus doing here as he responds to John? And Jesus loves John. I mean, in the next section, we'll see how much Jesus regards John. He esteems John. And Jesus is bringing to John's mind Old Testament messianic passages. We read one this morning, Isaiah 35. That's the passage he's highlighting. Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 that talks about preaching the good news to the poor. I mean, the lame leap, the blind see, the desert. It becomes a fertile garden. Passages John was familiar with. And these were signs that the end was here, that the age of Messiah was here, that the coming one had arrived. And Scripture spoke of a coming one and spoke of God exerting his lordship and saving and redeeming and sending one who would represent him. He's saying, look, I am the coming one. Look, the works of Isaiah 35 and 61, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm doing the works of Messiah. He's reassuring his struggling forerunner, his cousin, his friend, who's found in the pit right now, don't doubt, don't be disappointed with me. Don't despair over me. I'm doing the works Messiah is supposed to do. And just notice in that list of things he does, what comes last. That's the the high point. And we would think raising the dead is the high point. I mean, what's better than raising the dead except Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and says that the high point is I'm preaching good news to the poor. That's the sign of the Messiah. And the reason the good news to the poor is the culminating point of his work that day is because he's preaching to the poor, those who know they need it, 
know they need it. They can't save themselves. They can't be good enough. They despair of themselves before God. He announces good news because he's not just raising the dead to temporal life. He's, he's, his mission is bigger. It's to deal with that sin in order that you and I can have eternal life. And it's the climax because this preaching of the good news to the poor requires the very heart and soul of Jesus' ministry, which is the cross and resurrection. And you see the Old Testament prophets and John himself, they, they couldn't really understand Jesus' ministry. Even though John announced, you're the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, he couldn't actually get it because who would ever think of the cross? Like, and so the prophets looked as young people that went to Colorado, when you looked at a peak way in the distance, you saw one peak that you were going to walk to or a hike to. And then when you got up close, you realized, well, there's two or three peaks here. And so the Old Testament prophets looked in the distance and said, in the age of Messiah, salvation and judgment are coming. God's going to save his people and judge his enemies. However, in the trans, in the in the time leading up to Messiah and once Jesus came and things became clear, Jesus goes, yes, I'm going to bring salvation and judgment to watch out. I come bringing salvation and grace by taking judgment on myself first. And there'll be another stage down the line where I come and wrap up history and then I'll be judge of the living and the dead. But today is the day of grace. John, I will fulfill all the works of Messiah, but it's not the way you thought I would. Don't be offended by me. This is much better than you can ever dream. So Jesus says to John, blessed is the one not offended by me. Don't be offended by my mission or my methods. I'm going to do the right thing in the right way and in the right time. I'm here to accomplish the ultimate work of eternal life, and it's going to cost me everything. I'm going to be abandoned at the cross. I'm going to be deserted at the cross. I'm going to have my own dark night of the soul. I'm going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, your beloved, whom you've always loved from eternity past? Why that? But I'm going to go through the dark night of the soul in order that I might take the sin of my people and endure hell on behalf of my people and undo it and rise victorious from among the dead and give eternal life to my people. John, don't be offended by me. Because I go through the dark night of the soul, the dark night of the soul is never the ultimate word for you. And I have your life in the palm of my hand and I'm doing what has to be done to redeem your soul for eternity. Blessed are you if you're not offended by me. Don't you love it? He didn't just rebuke him. He didn't say, John, don't get offended. He said, blessed are you. Why? Because I'm opening up blessedness in the only way it can happen, though you don't understand it, by the cross and resurrection. And John, what you don't get is that you're my forerunner and you're a picture of me. And so you may have to suffer such that many people are awakened to the truth of the gospel. And people of God, we're little Christs. The path of the cross is our path, and we might suffer that the world might see Jesus in our lives, but you and I suffer knowing we have entered into blessedness because Jesus has taken the root cause of all our affliction such that there is nothing that will overwhelm us. We are more than conquerors in all of it because he had conquered over hell, death, and sin and sits at the right hand of God as our only mediator. And by faith in him, we're declared right, and nothing can shake it. 
blessed are you if you're not offended by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.